Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff I Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. So, recently, um, we did an episode, and actually we're recording this out of order, so this might be a surprise to you, Samantha, but we did an episode on the Disney film Encanto, and my reaction to a song in there, because that movie is very much about family and uh, family dynamics and sibling dynamics. And me and my good friend Marissa really connected over the song over the holidays because it was all about kind of the stress of being the person, usually the middle child, trying to keep your family together, or the older child, and, and the pressure of that. And uh, I know it's just something I think about a lot. And I've, because I, I was kind of the... I'm I'm a middle child and I have an older brother and younger brother. And I think there's a lot of reasons why I fit into the kind of the middle child trope. Um, one was even though I was the only girl in the family, I was as part of that, I felt more pressure to be more responsible. I can't speak for my brothers, but that's just what I was internalizing. But I did, like, I got forgotten at school if I didn't have to pick them up. Like, I got, like, she's fine. Don't worry about her. Which is just, it's one of those things where when I got older and I was telling people this, they were like, mm. <laughs> are you okay? <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I don't know. Uh, it's just been on my mind lately. And yes, Samantha, we will be talking about it. And listeners, you might have already heard it. <laughs> Interesting. Yes, 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 yes. But in the spirit of that, I wanted to bring back this classic episode on middle children. Please enjoy. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we're talking about middle children because this podcast is coming out around Middle Children Day because in the 21st century, every everything has a day. That's and, right. And middle children, I think, really deserve a day. Yeah. Because they're stereotyped as just such, well... Middle children. Yeah, and this is coming from an only child and a youngest child. Yeah, and I wouldn't say that I'm biased against middle children. I actually have lots of sympathy for middle children simply because there are so many assumptions that they have all sorts of personality ticks, shall we call it. <laughs> yeah, and what's interesting about those assumptions is that the negative stuff in, in particular, it hasn't always been that way. Uh, for a long time, like the earliest research was saying that that middle children were probably going to be the most successful. And even within the personality traits that researchers tend to ascribe to middle children, there are positive ones. But it seems like in our culture, we really only hear about the negative. So for the 70 million middle children <laughs> in the United States... This podcast is for you. Yeah, we're no longer ignoring you. No, we're not ignoring you. Yes, yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry that this birth order podcast came so, so far after the other ones. Yeah, th coming from a youngest child, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to steal the spotlight. This one's all for you. And I'm, I, as an only child, I am making an effort to share. Yes. <laughs> so let's look a little bit at the history of birth order research because we've talked about birth order before on the podcast. And I don't know about you, Caroline, but I find it 
endlessly fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I find it interesting that researchers find it so interesting to, like you said, ascribe so much meaning to where your place falls in the family. And so one of those earliest researchers looking into birth order was Francis Galton, who was actually Darwin's half-cousin, so that family has a lot going on. But scholarly interest in this whole arena can be traced back to Mr. Galton in 1874 when he published English Men of Science, Their Nature and Nurture, And we hear the term, the phrase nature versus nurture a lot, especially in kind of social stuff, social research. Well, this Galton guy is actually the one who coined the phrase. Yeah. And it's kind of funny that in this book, Englishman of Science, he essentially comes to the conclusion that being a firstborn male and he did the male part wasn't in there for reasons we'll get into just being a firstborn was the best because Mm -hmm. out of the 180 men that he chronicled across all sorts of scientific fields, he found that 99 of them were firstborn. So he was like, well, clearly being the firstborn simply, you know, sets you up for being a super brilliant guy in science. And that's awesome, which is funny because Francis was the youngest child. Yeah, but so the whole thing about his birth order research, though, and we will talk more about this a little bit later, is that Galton didn't count sisters. So, yes, a man might be the firstborn son, but that doesn't mean he's the firstborn. And so that, among so many other aspects of early research, is important to keep in mind. But moving from Galton on to Alfred Adler, he's also a big name in this early research. He's the founder of individual psychology and tidbit was the second of seven children. He was born in 1870 to give you a little time context. And Adler's the one who really blew the lid off the significance of birth order because he linked it to all sorts of things, including psychiatric disorders, intelligence, creativity, and even sexual orientation. Right. And his view, which granted was mostly anecdotal, was that firstborns do benefit from being the sole focus until they are dethroned by the second child. So if you're looking at a hypothetical three child family, he said that the oldest you guys, you oldest children out there are not going to like this. He says the oldest are the most likely to suffer from neuroticism and substance abuse as they attempt to compensate for excessive responsibility and loss of position because they were dethroned. Then he looked at the youngest, Kristen. Hello. Earmuffs. He says that the youngest are overindulged, which leads to poor social empathy, which listeners, I assure you, is not true of Miss Conger. I'm just stuffing my face with pizza and ice cream right now. <laughs> and then he gets to the middle And, you know, he was one of his own family's middle children. And he points out that he believes middle children would be the most successful because they wouldn't suffer from either the oldest's dethronement or the youngest's overindulgence. Yeah. If you just plot siblings out on the spectrum, you have the middle kids who are just right there in that comfortable, cushy position in Adler's view. And that's so fascinating because we start out with middle children being perhaps the most set up for a more balanced life, at least. Yeah. But like I mentioned a second ago, 
pretty much everything we know from the research from Adler and Galton is somewhat inaccurate because they left out so much stuff that's, that is important to keep in mind in this kind of psychological research. And by important stuff, do you mean women? Yeah, like it's stuff like women. Yeah, I mean, because one thing that's important to keep in mind with birth order, especially when we're looking at this earliest research, is that we are not so far away from the days of primogenitor when automatically someone's, you know, family's wealth and property would be passed along to the firstborn son. And that son could have seven plus older sisters, but he would still get everything because Mm -hmm. that's the way Things flow down. And so when you add girls, daughters, sisters back into the equation, and that's something that Katrin Schulman talks about in her book that she co-wrote, The Secret Power of Middle Children. For instance, that when they went back in and added the sisters of U.S. presidents, which a lot of times we hear, oh, well, most U.S. presidents were the firstborns. Uh, actually, 52% of U.S. presidents are middleborns because for so long their older sisters weren't counted. Yeah, that doesn't even, I, my brain parts cannot even comprehend this, that they were like, oh, well, there are these lady people who are also in the house. We're not sure who they are, but they certainly don't count. Well, they kind of didn't count because they, once they, they were simply married off and had no rights of their own under coverture laws for a really long time. Well, yeah. And in terms of talking about the support that children receive, even if there are a bunch of older sisters, it's not like they're going to be afforded the same educational opportunities, financial financial support that their younger brothers will. So in that regard, it is almost like these male siblings, even if they are younger than their sisters, are sort of firstborn if we're talking about the degree of support they get. Um, so uh, a younger brother might be set up for life, whereas his older sisters are just expected to to marry into money and find support themselves. Exactly. And in addition to leaving the girls out of the equation, a lot of those older studies didn't take family size into account either, because obviously being the second of two children versus being the second of seven children is going to play out differently in terms of family dynamics. Right. And and what's available in terms of resources and attention from parents. Um, one interesting example that was brought up in stuff we read was just talking about family position and how that can shift based on family events like death, birth, etc. Why that's important is because social position, rather than just your ordinal birth order, actually tends to predict IQ, researchers have found. The oldest children in a family tend to have higher IQs, but if an older child dies, the younger one, who is now the oldest, is then seen to have an IQ that's higher than average for his birth order position. What is up with that? Researchers say that when children are very young, the, the, you know, quote unquote, verbal attention that they get from their parents, their parents being excited about them and excited for their kids to learn language is very key. So when you're, ha- when you have that firstborn and you're sterilizing everything and you're trying to say fancy big words in front of them so that they learn to speak, that maybe part of the middle child curse is that attention sort of drops off. And so it's that whole early attention to language that helps boost the IQ. See, I think that this is an anecdotal aside, but with the language factor, I feel like as the youngest of five children, I was just 
just showered in language because I had all these siblings mm-hmm. and my parents. Yeah talking to me. I wonder if just the research maybe is more general. I don't I don't know. Maybe yeah. they just assume that like if you're a middle or a youngest, you're just going to be like forgotten about in a side room somewhere. Well, the thing about these kinds of studies is that there are so many different variables right. that will play into how you grow up and how your personality develops. Right, exactly. Um I mean, listen, people might simply just relate differently to one another in a family based on whether they're the parent or whether they're one of the siblings, whether they're male or female and whether as a parent, I mean, you might, if you were a middle child yourself, you might identify more with your child who's a middle or older and older only and only that kind of thing. Yeah. My dad was the youngest of, or is the youngest of two. And I know for a fact that he especially doted on me as the youngest child. Well, yeah. And I think, you know, that could have a lot to do with, you know, parents or families in general projecting things, whether your dad was the youngest. And so he wanted to protect you from any negative feelings that he experienced as a youngest or whether good things happened to him as the youngest. And he wanted to make sure you experience those good things, too. So a lot of times parents can sort of create a self-fulfilling prophecy situation where maybe they have stereotypes in their own brains about how certain children behave in certain different ways and they either accidentally end up bringing it out or they try their hardest to counteract it. And I can only like imagine now some parents unfortunately being like, oh, Tim, he is such a middle <laughs> child. My goodness. Um, but when you look, though, at just the history of the research on birth order, there has been an interesting tug of war over time because you have Adler and then, you know, a lot of people from there up until the 80s saying, oh, yeah, birth order, we can correlate it to all sorts of things and it means everything. And then in the 80s, there was this big meta analysis of all these old studies, which said, actually, birth order, no big deal. But then this researcher named Soloway came around and he controlled for variables like class and the number of siblings. And he came back around and sort of pushed it back out into the realm of, oh, birth order, super important. So I think still, if you get a bunch of psychologists in a room, it would be hard to draw one clear consensus among all of them about how important birth order is. Well, just tell me when that's going to happen and I'm just going to not come into work that day because I don't want to be judged. (laughs) By the room full of psychologists. (laughs) Yes, that does sound stressful. But the thing is, there have been so many studies and there are still so many studies looking into these birth order dynamics. And the research, particularly on middle children, is especially compelling because they're kind of head scratchers in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And so let's dig more into the science of the middle child, shall we? And we'll talk more about that when we come right back from a quick break. So all of this research, this back and forth on birth order in general and middle children specifically, like Kristen said, It's had its ups and downs. People have thought it was gospel. People have thought it was nothing but like the same type of bunk that astrology is, that people just want to read about themselves and and, and whatnot. But we have to mention out of all of this, the stereotypes that people hold of middle children. 
And I feel like in, before we do this, we should just apologize to the, <laughs> the middle children listening who probably are very familiar with the stereotypes. Often middle children are cast as being confused, underachieving, overshadowed by their older and younger siblings and overlooked by parents. Right. But um, some positive things have come out of being a middle child, according to researchers. Stereotypically and, and very generally, children who are born in the middle have a tendency to roll with things pretty easily. They're more easygoing. They're flexible. They handle disappointments better. And the big thing you always read is that middle children are negotiators. They're good at seeing both sides of an argument and they just want peace and quiet in the family. Yeah. And another big thing you also hear about is that they are super social and almost like friendship specialists because the thinking goes they receive less parental attention and have to look elsewhere for connections. And there was a 2003 study uh, looking at middle children and relationships. And it did, in fact, support the idea that middle children tend to value friends over family and are usually less helpful in families, probably because they're like, well, nobody's helping me. Right. Oh, but then now I'm just guilty just then of middle child stereotyping. Ah, youngest. I know. Whatever. Well, so what plays into all of these personality traits, whether they're simply stereotypes or whether they are true for you in your life, has a lot to do with family Dynamics. And so psychologist Catherine Salmon, who, along with Schumann, was the co-author of The Secret Power of Middle Children, talks about that whole sort of being ignored and independent thing, which leads to being good at negotiating, talking about how middle kids are often marching to the beat of their own drum, setting themselves apart from their older and younger siblings. And she says that without the parental support that the youngest enjoys... Because the youngest in a fight has a tendency to circumvent the oldest and appeal straight to the parents. Never. And they also don't enjoy the authority that the oldest child has. They have to get very good at that negotiating, figuring out what the other person wants and needs, and then managing to get them what they want in addition to what they themselves want. Yeah, and another thing that uh, Schumann and Salomon talk about in the book is, I mean, because as you can imagine from the title, The Secret Power of Middle Children, they're very pro-middle children. They kind of take uh, the lemons and make lemonade. So, for instance, they say that actually receiving less parental attention, as middle children often do, they you can use that to their advantage to have a sense of independence because... With the firstborn, obviously, the parents are like, oh, my God, we're going to have to do everything to make sure we don't somehow break this baby, blah, blah, blah. And then by the time you get to the second child, you've done it already. So they're like, oh, well, you know, you can, uh, let him eat dirt. You can cook your own dinner, <laughs> Sam. <laughs> baby, I know you can't reach the stove, but give it a shot. Um, so perhaps this allows them to to just be better at fending for themselves and thinking outside of the box a little bit more. So maybe it's a good thing. Yeah. And of course, gender matters, too. I mean, obviously, it matters if we look back at Galton and Adler's research and how Galton just totally frickin discounted women. And <laughs> so did society. Well, Galton was also a eugenicist. So a perfect man, he was not. That's true. But I think it's interesting to point out that if the middle child is a different gender than the older and younger siblings, the quote unquote middle child syndrome does not typically affect him or her. And 
So that's why I'm interested to watch my baby cousins grow up, because the oldest sibling and the youngest sibling are both adorable boys, and the middle sibling is an adorable little girl with, I just, she's just such a firecracker. I love her so much. But so I'll be interested to see how they grow up, because so far, it really does seem like they're following a very stereotypical pattern. Oh, of her being very much a middle child? Of her being very, like, independent and freewheeling. The oldest is, like, very good at school. He's very responsible, you know, plays sports. He's toeing the line. He's, you know, good kid. And then the youngest is just wacky. Yeah, the idea of how gender plays, whether you are the firstborn of your gender in a family, makes total sense, too. Looking at my sister's family, for instance, she had three boys. Mm-hmm. And by the time her last pregnancy came around, she and my brother-in-law really wanted a girl. Not that they don't love their sons to bits, but they really want a girl. And so she's not only the youngest, but also the first girl. So in a way, she's getting the double (laughs) typical overindulgence of the youngest child. Right. Because if you do have an oldest boy, for instance, and then you or maybe a couple of boys and then a girl like like with your sister, you know, her firsts are like the first, yeah. you know, her first dance recital, her first like, you know, pair of cute pink shoes. Like these are all firsts that are celebrated the way that they would be for a first child. It's just that it's a different gender. And so things are new. Well, and that speaks to how the dynamic of family size can also play into this, because I would imagine that for smaller families probably doesn't make as much of a difference. But if you have a larger brood than, you know, wanting, like if you've had a lot of sons or you've had a lot of daughters, that firstborn, you know, of <laughs> whichever one you're really hoping for <laughs> is, is an even bigger deal and might play or, or might make that birth order even more significant. Right. And I mean, talking about siblings specifically and not just parents, um, there was a 1999 study using data from the Wisconsin Longitudinal Study that measured the five main personality characteristics, which include like neuroticism and independence and stuff like that. And they actually found that brothers and sisters, regardless of birth order, are moderately similar in personality to one another. So, yes, while birth order and parental attention and things like that are important, so is temperament and so is the way that your siblings are. If you so desperately want to be like another of your siblings, then you will probably try to act that way, too, or get that same type of attention. Well, and I think it also makes a difference who is next in line above you, whether it is, uh, you know, in my case, the next oldest is a sister. And I think that our dynamic would have played out much differently if it had been a brother, because Mm -hmm. as two sisters or two brothers, a lot of competition Mm -hmm. can happen. Um, and again, th- th- this is when it gets into the realm of so many correlations that you can start to draw as you just switch up all the different possible family dynamics. But moving out of the family and looking at how birth order affects potentially romantic relationships is also fascinating because I would say with this one, It seems like a lot of the studies that we looked at were pretty clear cut Mm -hmm. in how they related middle children and their dating style, which is not entirely positive. 
<laughs> right. I mean, Kristen, you said the word competition. If we look at jealousy, this is a study, by the way, from the North American Journal of Psychology from back in 2008. And they found that firstborns, firstborn children in romantic relationships tested out as the least jealous in relationships, whereas middle children were the most jealous. Now, what is up with that? They found that this is because the middle child is stereotypically in the house, always the child who is in the most competition for attention, and they can end up feeling slighted or out of place. And so their jealousy issues, the researchers say, might not be fully resolved and possibly might carry over into adult relationships. And apparently this is a very Aldarian view of how the birth order can affect your personality. So this is kind of the the old school birth order psychology at work here. But there have been other studies on top of this finding that middle children have the highest percentage of what's called insecure attachment. Um, we've talked about before in the podcast about how people tend to have different sorts of relationship attachment styles. So usually the most positive would be considered secure attachment, mm-hmm. where you're like, hey, you're my boo, and I love you, and this is cool, and I'm <laughs> secure in your love for me. I bet you write the best Valentine. <laughs> yeah, my, my boyfriend feels romanced always, I can tell you. <laughs> But then with insecure attachment, this is, I mean, it it is what it sounds like. There's usually a lot of uh, anxiety at work within relationships. These are the people who tend to text more often, for instance, Mm -hmm. text their their paramours more often, um, tend to be more jealous, Mm -hmm. et cetera. Right. Well, yeah, because jealousy is tied really closely to that insecure attachment. And so middle children... I don't know. But I, but I wonder, though, if that plays into another study we found, which shows that people of the same birth order tend to pair up. So middle children are likely to date middle children. My my boyfriend, also a youngest child. I don't know. Interesting. Yeah, I would almost feel like to if if. We're going just off of stereotypes here, people. All right, let's do it. I I would think that two middle children would be totally combustible and not a great match. If we're talking about two really jealous people, like they might be stuck at the hip to each other, but only because they don't trust each other. They're just texting each other, but standing like back to back. <laughs> what are you doing? Who are you looking at? We're speaking in jest and very stereotypically right now. Let me let me say that again. But anyway, when we look at attitudes toward love, whether they are more on the pragmatic side or more on the googly, mushy side, the oldest child was found to be the most realistic of the group, followed by the middle and then the only and then the youngest. Okay, sure. But you also have to keep in mind that in general, researchers say, as you age, you your your outlook on love, your attitude about love becomes more realistic, more pragmatic, probably just because you've been there, done that, seen it, you know, heard it, all of that stuff. So that that kind of makes sense. Yeah. Um, you also found some compelling research on love styles yeah. and how that relates to birth order. And I'd never heard of this before. The Luddus love style. Yeah. So there are a bunch of different types of love styles. They include Eros, which is erotic love, agape, which is more of the love for all mankind, the giving unselfish type of love. A lot of people associate it with like Christian love. Um, but so the middle child 
was associated with this lettuce style of love, which is interesting. And here's why. So the middle child has the highest mean for jealousy, right? We already talked about that. And the lettuce type of lover is a game playing type of lover. So in this style of love, people enjoy love. They like it, but they never allow it to become necessary. Lettuce lovers tend to approach love more casually. So they wouldn't likely be jealous. What is, I don't know what's going on with that. Conflicting research. Probably evidence that a lot of this should be taken with a grain of salt, it sounds like. Right. I really feel like you and I could sit here and discuss how both of those is right. How a middle child could be more jealous of the attention that his or her siblings received, you know, or could be this lettuce style lover because, oh, well, I wasn't given given attention, so I don't want to attach to anyone. Or they could be super casual and laid back about it because yeah. they are so social and are so good with interpersonal uh, relationships anyway, because they tend to prefer friends over family, apparently, that they would make super great. You know, they, they'd be great at dating because they could just like meet people and form relationships, but are kind of like chill about it. Yeah. So I don't know what well, we, we need to ask our listeners for sure to tell us about their uh, their love styles. Yeah. But one thing in all of the studies conducted on birth order and specifically on middle children that I couldn't find that was driving me bonkers was the cultural history of this so-called middle child syndrome, mm-hmm. because like we mentioned, when it starts out with Adler being a middle child, doesn't seem to be a bad thing. Yeah. There are positive personality tra- traits associated with being middle children. We don't really hear about them that much. When did we culturally recast middle children as these just awkward kids? I don't know. Well, I have one theory for you. Oh, okay. it was the one theory that I could find. And I bought it to, <laughs> to an extent because <laughs> When I think of the stereotypical middle child in pop culture, it's Jan Brady, because there is an, a famous episode of the Brady Bunch where she says, Marsha, 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 because she's freaking out about the fact that her older and prettier and more popular sister, Marsha, gets all the attention and Jan just wants to be Jan. She does, She wants to be her own woman and appreciated for who he, she is, not just Marsha Brady's little sister. And so there was an essay I was reading by this guy, Matthew C. Henry, called Generation Jan. And he said that he thinks that with Generation X, uh, you know, they're growing up in the 1970s. This is when all of a sudden you have TVs in every home and probably even multiple TVs. And you also have kids plopping down in front of those TVs. And what comes on in the 70s? The Brady Bunch. And then what goes into syndication for the rest of time? The Brady Bunch. And so one thing that the Brady Bunch did, like essentially their bread and butter was just focusing in on sort of family stereotypes. Mm -hmm. And Jan was the middle child. And so Mm -hmm. he thinks that planted a seed in our cultural brain that the middle child is Jan Brady putting on a black wig to try to make herself stand out and looking ridiculous and always being like, oh, Jan, pitied in a way. 
I guess I should have watched The Brady Bunch. I am so surprised to learn that you did not watch The Brady Bunch. I watched so much Brady Bunch when I was a kid. I, I didn't. I guess I was just watching Garfield and and peanuts yeah and I, th- I think my parents were just really cool with me watching the brady bunch all the time because it was such a clean show yeah whereas uh, my parents were just like i'm sure my parents were the ones who were like cook your own dinner baby so they, <laughs> not, they not didn't to, care not to say that garfield was like yeah <laughs> the the beavis some, and butthead of, some satanic show <laughs> yes so i'll be curious to hear from listeners whether they have any theories to add to this as to when this middle child syndrome became a thing, because you Google middle child syndrome and there are a million articles and news segments on it, but no one talks about where it came from. Yeah. And, and I think it's also, you know, important to keep in mind, like I definitely want to hear if you feel like you totally fit the middle child stereotype and your family dynamics were totally along those lines or not. Because I think a lot of this, a lot of the researchers who said, you know, there's a lot more aspects to a personality than than where you fall in the family. Your temperament, your parents' temperament, your gender, your socioeconomic status. (laughs) Perfect. Jinx. Jinx. But yeah, and so it, it is almost like an astrology argument. Like, yes, I tend to fit a lot of the Sagittarius aspects, but it's also, I found out in therapy, I have a lot of my personality from my parents. So, you know what I think it is, is simply the fact that we as humans really are just fascinated with ourselves. Yeah. We want to know why we work the way they, the way we do. Yeah. So I think it's the same reason why, you know, people are interested in, say, their astrological sign or in their birth order, or in what their name means. Right. And all of these different things, just so that we can diagnose ourselves with something. We all just want to know if we're normal. Yeah. yeah. It's just, I mean, it's the reason why the WebMD symptom checker is so popular. I've, I've almost broken my addiction to that. Now I just now I just ask other friends questions about their issues. And then I immediately I'm like, wait, that sounds familiar. I think. But after this podcast, are you worried you're a middle child? (laughs) No, I'm I'm definitely an only child. Okay, that's good. That's good. I guess steps in the right direction. Well, now we want to hear from the middle children listening. Uh, Like Caroline said, do you feel like you fit the mold of the stereotypical middle child? And can anyone tell us? Where the whole middle child syndrome came from. Let us know all of your middle children thoughts. Mom stuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address. You can also message us on Facebook or tweet us at Mom Stuff Podcast. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. So I've got a letter here from Carrie in response to our series on women explorers. She writes, I wanted to mention my experience as a solo female traveler in South America. I graduated from university with degrees in political science and global studies, and I was turned on for a job that I very much wanted and naively expected to get. Like many recent grads, I decided to travel until the job market looked more promising, and I bought a one-way ticket to Ecuador. I spent two years saving and did my research about cultural norms and safety, and my immediate family was very supportive, but responses from others were varied. Most commonly, alone, aren't you afraid? Why would you do that? Or, well, you have to do it now because once you have kids, it'll be a lot harder to travel. And finally, well, you have to travel now because once you're married, your husband won't let you go alone. (laughs) 
While I'm not discovering anything new, the idea of being a female solo traveler seems to elicit the same kinds of criticisms that female explorers have always faced. I have to suspect that men in the same position I'm in would be considered fun adventurers as opposed to reckless and irresponsible for postponing their career and shockingly having children. Since I've moved here, after traveling for a while, I co-founded an organic chocolate shop and cafe with a Peruvian family and am permanently moved here to run the business. Hey, that's so cool. I meet women every day from all over the world who are traveling alone and who have come under criticism from family and friends for going it on their own. While life here is culturally quite different for women, no, I don't spend every day worrying about being raped and kidnapped, and I don't have any regrets about not being married and having children. So thanks for writing in, Carrie, and best of luck in Ecuador. Well, I have a letter here from Holly. And she says, it's great to see and hear about the women thus far in history who have essentially thrown up their arms and did whatever they wanted. So what if someone says you can't or that people don't do that, etc.? Why not? That's the only question that needs to be answered. While listening to your episode, I couldn't help but think about Mary Anderson, a much more recent and fairly unknown explorer. She and her husband started the company REI, which stands for Recreational Equipment, Inc., in 1938, which I now proudly work for. But she started as an avid mountaineer who, along with her husband, wanted to get more people out exploring and help them get connected to gear and knowledge to assist them. This also included her stitching tents by hand in their home while their co-op was continuing to grow. I've tried to do more research on her in their explorations, but haven't been able to find much. No, she didn't have any major discoveries under her belt, but she is a big staple in my mind of a woman who is now over 100 years old and still has a great handshake from what I hear who stands for what she believes in and pushes forward to expand her knowledge with others and nature in mind. So thank you for the awesome story about this woman, Holly. And that's Mary Anderson for those of you who want to Google her. And thanks to everybody who's written in to us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And if you want to hit us up on social media, you can find links to all of those different places, including links to all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with all of our source citations. So you need to head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 